This podcast is shareable. I'm going to go ahead on a limb and say this either is or will become your favorite podcast. This is shareable. The show that's so good, you got to tell someone about it. Every episode, we explore the impact of people and technology on our lives and careers, and we send you away with something shareable. Now, without further ado, let's get to it. On October 4th, 1948, Thomas Ronald Webster, known as Hawkeye, was born. He was a Canadian former professional ice hockey player and former coach. But that's not who I'm talking to today. Today I'm talking to the other Tom Webster, the real Tom Webster, who is a senior vice president of Edison Research. You may know Edison Research as the custom market research company that's best known as the sole provider of exit polling data during the U.S. elections for all of the major news networks. Tom has nearly 20 years of experience researching consumer usage of technology, new media, and social networking. And he is the principal author of a number of widely cited studies, including The Social Habit, Twitter Users in America, and the co-author of The Infinite Dial, which is America's longest-running research series on digital media consumption. He is also the co-author of The Mobile Commerce Revolution, co-host of the podcast The Marketing Companion with Mark Schaefer, one of my favorites, and a popular keynote speaker on data and consumer insights. He is also hilarious. So, without further ado, let me bring to you Tom Webster. Welcome back, shareable listeners. I'm here with this for me. I, I didn't tell you this, but Tom, this is a big this is a big get for me to have you on the show. I have Tom Webster on the podcast today. Hello, Tom. Hello, Jeff. I don't know that I'm a big get, but no, no, you are though because um, so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you my quick little uh, uh, how I discovered you because I know we run in similar circles, but. Uh, you were on an episode of Six Pixels of Separation, which has long been one of my favorite podcasts. And it was called uh, Stats, Lies, and Data with Tom Webster. It was the first time mm. I ever heard of you. And the first thing I noticed was, wow, that guy's got a total voice for podcasting. So that was the first thing I noticed. And the second thing I was like, God damn, this man is interesting as all hell. And you're one of the few people that made data like really um, comprehensible. So I really, uh, you know, I followed a bunch of the other things that you do. I, I listen to the marketing podcast or the marketing companion, and uh, I'm just I'm excited to have you on the show to pick your brain about stuff. Wow. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah. I I've been presenting data for over 20 years now, and and you, you got to find a way, or you'll has you'll, it been that long? 20 years you've been doing that? Over over 20. Yeah, I'm I'm an old man, Jeff. Oh, stop it. Stop it. It's all in. Um, there. It's uh, yeah. I mean, you, you got to you have to find a way. I mean, it, if if data gets presented and it's not uh, understood and applied, then it was a, it was a wasted effort. So yeah. Isn't your, your, uh, kind of tagline for yourself, something along the lines of I tell the story of data or something along the lines? I tell, yeah, I tell the stories of numbers. Okay. I've had a hard and fast rule for years when I put together data presentations that, that if I don't, uh, if I don't have some insight, if I don't have a story or reason why a piece of data is in a, in a deck, whether we ask the question or not, uh, I don't include it. That's probably a good rule to live by. For many things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd imagine um, a lot of the presentations we all have to sit through would be a lot better if more people, um, you know, kind of stood by that same kind of rule and didn't include statistics or data that either didn't have context or weren't meaningful or potentially weren't even accurate. 
Yeah, you know, I, here's something I, I've never, I've never liked. And apologies if if this is a thing that you have said. <laughs> but a, a, a lot of people say it uh, is when people say, "Oh, I'm no good with numbers," um, and that you may have a preference on that. But you know, I I did not start off uh, doing what I do now. I I got I got two degrees in English before I went on uh, to business school and kind of discovered this career. And when, whenever someone says, I'm no good with numbers, I, I hear that exactly like someone saying, I'm, I'm no good with letters, or I'm no good with numbers, or with reading, I'm no good with speaking, or, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It's like one of those uh, just kind of basic level things that I've, I've, never, I've never liked people making that excuse. But a lot of it is, it's, it's incumbent upon the person who is delivering the numbers to make them comprehensible, to give them a context so that people can understand them. Yeah, no, I totally get that. I uh, I used to be a person that would say I'm no good with numbers. And then through sheer force of will, getting an MBA and being dropped into situations where that's not exactly an excuse that you can use, uh, I became quite good with numbers and actually kind of like them now. Uh, but it reminds me of something that Seth Godin says, where he said there there's no such thing as writer's block because people don't get uh, talker's block, I think is what he said, or thinker's block, because essentially writing is just a product of basically speaking or thinking. So I think it's kind of a, a similar idea that like numbers are a part of life. So you're going to have to either use them or not use them. And if you're being presented with them, I like your point that it's kind of incumbent upon the person presenting them to make them comprehensible. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. If I, if I get questions when I give a presentation and the questioner clearly didn't understand, uh, really didn't understand the numbers, it's my fault. I, I didn't do it right. So that's, that's always what I, I strive to do. That's good because a lot of people in your position will take the data to obfuscate the point and make themselves appear more intelligent. And I think one of the things I've always appreciated about when I listen to you on podcasts or you know, probably even more so when I look at the things that you write is that you're very quick to contextualize data in a way that's understandable. And you also push back on things people might immediately jump to the conclusion of. Like I, I was just uh, prior to the podcast, I was reading... Um, your your whole medium article on the kind of the manifesto of podcasting and just the number of different things that you presented and you were like, yeah, that's not what that's not what you think it means. And then you kind of go into that. I I just appreciate, you know, making sense of that. Yeah, to me, that's that really is my job. Um, it's it's hopefully the thing that will allow me to continue working when Skynet takes over all the other functions that I do at Edison. Um and that's that's sort of not a joke, really. I mean, a, a lot of what people do with numbers now, in terms of generating insights and quantitative metrics and things like that, they're you know they're rapidly going to be done by AI and and kind of smarter and smarter software. So, uh, but hopefully, I'll I'll still have a job doing this. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because like I have a, a series of different things that I want to talk to you about. I just have a whole kind of scratch pad for, full of stuff, but you kind of preempted on something that I wanted to ask you about, which, which is specifically, I often will tell young marketers who are getting into the business that the money is in data, right? In data analysis, if you can make sense of analytics data and you can make recommendations based upon that data that, you know, um, you know, help to improve the bottom line, you, you're going to have a good job. And that's better oftentimes than the person who can come in and, you know, maybe, you know, do basic marketing tasks, whatever that might look like these days. Um, and there's probably still a lot of money in expert creative, but I've always thought that the money right now, given all of the data that's being created, the big data, et cetera, is in data analysis. Do you see that as having kind of a short half-life before that gets taken over by the robots? 
Uh, in that context, yes, I do. Um, I think a lot of that is rapidly becoming automated, even as we speak. Um, even my own job has, you know, a, a lot of the things and the and the processes that we do to produce the the research that we produce, you know, that's over the years we've gotten more and more tools that uh, that make it sort of easier, faster, better. But that just means I I now have more time to spend on on insights, and that's that's where I would tell someone to to really kind of spend their time is, you know, the the yeah, there's a sort of hygienic level of of quantitative analysis that you have to be able to do. And I think that's incumbent on any marketer today. But if you don't understand the context of a number and what it, what its place in the universe is, I think is, uh, is the message there. And I, I appreciate what you said about uh, how I like to point out that a number often doesn't mean what you think it means. And one of the, one of the ways where that often manifests itself is when I present something and there's some small number on there, you know, like 3% of Americans do this or 4% of Americans do that. That's still like, you know, 10 or 11 million people. That ain't nothing. Um, and so I, I never like to use words like only when I describe numbers on a slide or numbers on a, in a presentation because that's kind of a judgment call, right? Like, a, yeah. like it should have been higher. You, you don't know that. Um, and so I, I've, I've always tried to, to, to bring uh, insight but not, uh, not judgment, I guess, to what it is that we produce and present. Yeah, I really appreciate that because I, I deal in a lot of uh, social media advertising metrics. And, you know, we'll get into, we, you know, we have some clients with smaller budgets, others with larger budgets, and we'll look at like a video watch through metric. And you'll see the differences like, you know, 22% to like 24%. And like 2% is not something most of our clients would obsess about. But like I always am obsessing about like pennies and, and small percentages. And I actually just read a book uh, called From Poop to Gold. It's the Harmon Brothers that did um, the Squatty Potty commercial. Oh, yeah, right. Great book. But in it, they're talking about how they'll run like four or five different versions of a video on YouTube. And they'll look for the one that has like a 2 or 3% because they know over the course of the budget that they're given that that could work out to several million. So And it, it really puts in context. I'm sure you guys have talked about this on the Marketing Companion, but... Um, this whole thing around like how many followers you have and all that, that there's so much meaning we place in the big numbers that sometimes I think we forget those little numbers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, if, if you showed me two surveys, two marketing surveys, and one of them was, uh, you know, an online survey of uh, 5,000 global marketers that you posted on Twitter, uh, and the other one was a survey of 50 people. If those 50 people are Fortune 500 CMOs, I'll take the 50-person survey, thank you. <laughs> so I want to talk to you a little bit about, um, I have so many things I want to talk to you about, but I feel yeah. like I'm like branching to a hundred. I want to talk to you a little bit about aggregate data versus individualized data. And that just made me think of it. So, uh, I believe it was you who said the quote, you don't need to taste the entire bowl of soup to know that it's too salty. Yes. That sampling, right. That yes. was you. I thought so. Yes, it was. Yep. Um, and I often get myself into this situation as a marketer where, I have a hard time trusting aggregate data, right? So like the best time to post on Instagram is blank, right? Or the best uh, type of oh, yeah. the, the right number of characters to use in a Facebook status update is blank. Every time I see those, I think, yeah, but I, how can that possibly be useful or helpful? So you deal in data and numbers and advising and making sense of all of this. D does aggregate data generally matter or should we only ever be paying attention to little numbers and small data? I mean, aggregate data can be a useful benchmark if you can uh, to benchmark yourself against. 
but that means benchmarking your own data. I mean, the biggest problem with aggregate data is uh, it's nacho data. That's <laughs> right. It's nacho data. And uh, your data may look incredibly different from that. Uh, and you just highlighted something I think I've, I probably have been ranting about for a decade, which is using uh, data dredging is, is the, the technical term for it, where you, uh, you, know, you look at a big pile of data and you, you, know, you sort of glean from that that the best time to send a, a tweet is you know, Tuesday at 12. Well, the best time for you to send a tweet is when your audience is on Twitter. And you don't know that unless you ask them. And if you, if you sort of operate under the assumption that Tuesday at 12 is a good time to tweet, uh, number one, it's, it's not your data. And number two, you're kind of blowing your competitive advantage. I mean, to me, doing your own research, whether you hire a company like mine or whether you do it yourself, that's your competitive advantage. That's, you're learning something that nobody else knows. I mean, honestly, that's, what, uh, that's kind of the thrill of my job is discovering new facts. I get to discover new facts every week. And if you're not doing that, if you're not doing that work to understand your customer, then you're, you know, you're blowing your competitive advantage and you're making your job a lot harder. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to contextualize a question I'm about to ask you, but there, there are some people that watch boxing and they can notice different types of defensive styles or offensive styles or whatever. And I watch boxing and you see two people punching each other. So you work day in and day out in data, and I work day in and day out in data. But our experiences, I'm sure, are vastly different. And um, I know there's a lot of marketers out there, probably some that are even listening, that don't even have the first idea of where to start with data. And I guess my question is, I'm, I have this sense of there's so much that I don't know that's out there in data. And I'm curious if we could kind of walk through a little bit of how you use data to either make decisions for your own company or to advise other companies. Because when I think about using data to make decisions, I only know about the things that are available to me. And I think a lot of people wouldn't even know what I have that's available to me. What are the sort of pieces of data that you're looking at collecting? Where do you start? Because I don't even know where to find some of these answers when I'm thinking about doing research, for instance. Like I want to do customer, uh, I want to build a customer profile. Well, I start where I start, but how do you go about doing things like that as a, as a marketer and somebody who deals in numbers? So my job, my day job, uh, is I'm a custom market researcher. I do custom market research. So, you know, the the kind of, those kind of aggregate studies uh, of what how Americans are behaving this way or that way. We release those as kind of survey courses on things. But the bulk of my job is solving problems for my clients. So. That's kind of that's kind of my job. A client comes to me with a problem, and you know, a survey is not is not necessarily the the hammer that I always use to hit that nail. But I'm going to always want to start with the the customer or the audience and to get insights from them before we do anything else. So you know, most of my job is understanding problems and then coming up with basically. Uh, using the scientific method, coming up with a hypothesis and a way to test that hypothesis. And I think the smartest thing you can do, and this is where I, I think, um, you know, my doing this for a long time has taught me this, but the smartest thing you can do when you're working with data is to try to prove yourself wrong. That's the scientific method. Prove yourself wrong. If, uh, if a, a client calls me up and asks me to prove something for them, right? Like, uh, we've got this new product. We want you to do a, a research study that, that says everybody needs this. I can guarantee you I can do that. And it's, it's not going to be helpful to you. 
the the real key here is to find ways to prove yourself wrong. Come up with come up with a hypothesis, design some kind of study. Again, you don't have to hire someone like me. Just uh, just kind of think it through. How can I prove this wrong? And if you if you can prove it wrong, you can probably do it pretty easily. If you can't, then maybe you're on to something. Um, and the problem with aggregate data that uh, as you brought it up before is is that nobody's trying to prove it wrong. You know, people are reading that, uh, you know, the, the best emails, uh, you know, best open rates are done by this. Uh, and they're not, they're not trying to prove it wrong. If you prove it wrong, then you know it's not going to work for you. And you can find out what does work for you rather than just sort of taking it on face value. Because, you know, the problem with a lot of uh, these things that people learn uh, from web metrics, for example, is that random numbers clump. You know, you can look at something and you can see a, a clump here or a clump there. It, come, it might just be random. It might not have anything to do with the time of day or what day of the week you sent it. It might just be random noise. And that's easy for someone like me to prove. But if you're not doing the work, you'll never know. Can we walk through a scenario? Go for it. Okay. Because, again, you're like design a study. So in my head, I'm like, okay, well, where do I start? So, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. So I'm going to act as a conduit for anybody that's listening to this. That is like, mm -hmm. okay, it sounds like you do this every day and it sounds so easy, but how do we do this? So, okay. Let's say that I want to reach, um, uh, I'm going to use an example that we've had recently, actually, uh, we're trying to reach, um, property owners and property managers of a one spaces in the Northeast. And we want to know if they need this product that we have to offer. That's just kind of a starting point. I guess, walk me through, like, what's a question you would ask me next? Where would, next, where would my next starting point be? How would I go about even finding these people, finding out what's interesting to them, who they are, demographics, time of day, networks? Like, where do yeah. I start with that? Uh, well, I, the first thing I would really start with is, um, you know, what's what's really the problem you're trying to solve? I mean, there are there are three basic kinds of, of research, and I'm not talking about qualitative and quantitative because mm -hmm. uh, that, that comes later. Okay. But there's, there's sort of three basic questions that, that I can answer for a client. The first one is, how am I doing? And that's, you know, that's, uh, that's kind of comparative research. That's where I'm going to look at the entire landscape and I'm going to see your place in the world and I'm going to see how your competitors are doing on, on whatever measures that, uh, that we think are, are key performance indicators, but how am I doing? Uh, the second type of research that I can, you know, the kind of question I can answer for someone is, is, oh shit, what do I do now? <laughs> okay, <laughs> right? Where did that scenario happen? Uh, well, that's, I mean, that's a fairly common research scenario. Uh, I've lost market share. I've got a failing product. I'm losing audience. Um, and so the, the basic question I'm trying to answer there is, uh, you know, at that point, it's, I'm putting out fires, right? It's research designed to put out fires. It's research designed to stop a slide, to, uh, to regain sales, to figure out what the problem is. Uh, and then the third kind of research that I can do answers the basic question, what could we do next? And that's really kind of, you know, blue ocean research, uh, you know, new product development, developing new programming for an audience, you know, something that hasn't been done before. And, you know, for that kind of research, I'm, I'm really going to look at people's motivations and, and why they do the things they do and try to get them to answer questions that, uh, that are not 
you know, necessarily straightforward questions, but will reveal something about, uh, about the human condition <laughs> that uh, is, is, a, is a pain point worth solving. Got it. Okay, so let me dig a little bit deeper and ask you kind of the where the rubber meets the road. Because my first thought, you know, well, let's take, let's take the first one. Um, you know, how am I doing? Right? Like, so that, that's the basic my first thought goes to, okay, well, I could run searches on Twitter, maybe use some social listening technology, I could probably send out a few surveys to existing clients. Uh, maybe I could run a, um, I could run a, a Google survey to a group as, as closely resembled to my audience as possible and ask them some questions about it. But that's about where, aside from focus groups and things like that, that's about where I kind of cap out on, well, how else do I find out this information? Well, I mean, the, the, I hate to disappoint you here, but that's, you know, that's about all there is. The, the, the issue that's is actually really helpful. That's not disappointing at all. Like you yeah, the, life and freedom. The issue <laughs> is, uh, is how well it's done. Yep. Um, and you know, one of the things that, and this is a, this is a, just a minor rant here. Um, everybody, you know, it's, it's kind of that, uh, uh, Dunning Kruger principle, you know, 80% of us think we're above average. Uh, most people think they can write good questions and it's actually a real art. Uh, it's, I've, I've written my fair share of bad ones over my career. And I'm, I'm lucky that we have this amazingly competent staff at Edison that, uh, that hones everything to a, a, a finely polished gem by the time it gets to a finished questionnaire. But actually writing a good questionnaire is difficult. It's a, it's a, it's an art and a science. Um, but you know, the real, the real key is, are you talking to the right people? If I'm, if I want to answer questions about property owners, uh, in, in Northeast Philadelphia, I'm not going to go on Twitter and get the right answers. Mm -hmm. I need to knock on some doors. Um, you know, we do all kinds of research at Edison and I have to tell you that involves, uh, you know, yes, it involves focus groups. Yes. It involves quantitative studies, both online and offline. Uh, but in some places where we do research, we do a lot of research in the Middle East, for instance, it's knocking on doors. We're the sole providers of exit polling data during elections and primaries uh, and, and uh, caucuses, caucusi. I don't, I don't know what the plural is. I believe is it is plural with an I. Well done. Yes. Um, caucus. No, that's, that's your tailbone. Um, to, uh, to the national election pool. And that involves, you know, thousands of human beings with clipboards <laughs> stationed outside of precincts. So, um, it, you know, the, the biggest question here is, are you, are you asking the right questions? Do you have the right tool for the job? And are you in fact talking to the right people? Uh, in the scenario that you outlined, you're looking for a very specific audience. That's not the kind of audience I'm going to be able to just fire up something on SurveyMonkey and reach. Yeah. Now, I, you know, if you wanted an audience of lawyers, I can get you that. If you wanted an audience of uh, CMOs, I can get you that. If you want an audience of property owners in, uh, you know, uh, uh, that meet certain criteria in northeastern, Phil in northeastern uh, Philadelphia, start inviting them to lunch. <laughs> you know, there's sort of, there's, uh, or, or find a place where they're going to congregate. Um, one of, I guess, our kind of secret weapons, I mentioned our uh, exit polling is that we do exit polling for a variety of non-political things as well. Um, and if you're trying to reach a, an audience of, uh, you know, people who do procurement for construction companies, that's not an easy dial, as we would say in my business. But if there's a conference that they all go to, we'll exit poll that. We can actually get them at the event. Um, so there's a variety of ways to do it. And, and often, 
when I talk in front of audiences about the approaches that we use, which are usually a mix of qualitative and quantitative, that's how I like to work, and I'll, I'll walk somebody through a process of solving a problem like this, invariably, someone will raise their hand and say, well, no one's going to do all that. And my favorite smart-ass answer is, you're right, only the very best companies do. Oh, wow. <laughs> right? Sick that's, burn. Yeah, that's, that's fierce. <laughs> that's, that's real fierce. Um, so does this mean that so much of the data that we're looking at is very likely tainted? Because, I mean, we're talking about two pretty hard bullseyes to hit there and framing the yeah. question correctly where you could potentially sway the answers based upon how it's written or potentially uh, approaching a group that's not the right group and thereby you're getting junk data. So how much of the stuff that's out there is even accurate enough for us to put our faith in? Boy, uh, not a lot. I mean, first of all, if a uh, now we do a lot of research on behalf of companies, and those companies sometimes publish that data, right? Um, we are we are never you'll never see our name on something that we did not uh, that we did not approve, right? Like mm -hmm. it, it's you know if someone um, pays us to conduct a study, my first response to them is always, "Are you sure? Are you sure you're going to be happy with the answer? Because it may not." we may not come back with the answer you want and we're not going to change that answer. You know, if, uh, if you come to us wanting, you know, to find out how great your baby is, you have to be prepared that we might come back and say your baby's ugly and not everybody is willing to do that. So you, th there has to be an, an, an honest inquiry. Um, but you know, the fact that a company sponsored a piece of data doesn't, doesn't make that data wrong. And really most things that you see have value. Very few studies I think are terrible. They're just reported wrong. You know, if I were to put a, 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 a link to an online survey on Twitter and say, hey, take my marketing study, and I got the answers back, and I reported it, you know, 65% of marketers said this. What I got wrong there was how I reported the data. I can't say 65% of marketers. I can say 65% of the people who took this survey on Twitter. Mm -hmm. But I can't project that to marketers. When we do studies like our annual uh, infinite dial study, that is legitimately a projectable study. Uh, we, are, we are conducting that study to the highest research standards possible. It's hideously expensive to do just so that we can say 12% of Americans do this or 24% of Americans do that. We know how difficult it is to be able to make that kind of a claim. Um, but, but the fault in, in most of the research that we see is, is, again, it's not in the study itself because most studies have some value if you know exactly who was asked and how so you can put it into context. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Yeah, There's a, uh, we do um, uh, a, a series of research studies uh, a couple times a year with NPR in partnership with NPR called the Smart Audio Report. And it's, you know, it's a basic, basically a regular check-in on the burgeoning smart speaker category, voice assistants and, and how they're changing human behavior, how they're changing media consumption and so on. And as a part of that, uh, we actually just, just this week got data back uh, from a, a survey that we did between Christmas and New Year's to find out how many people got a new smart speaker under their Christmas tree or menorah or pagan present pole, wherever they collect their goods, um, so that we could come up with a credible sort of holiday estimate uh, for that kind of a thing. And that number is going to come out very soon. I, I can't reveal it yet. But uh, we saw a piece of data a few months ago that Adobe had put out. 
And they claimed that about a third of America had one of these devices. And that just smelled completely wrong. It, it smelled high. Yeah, it's way high, right? It just smelled completely wrong. And, you know, it, it's, you can sort of smell when you've been working with this stuff as long as, as we have, you can smell it in a heartbeat. We just went, oh, that's wrong. Uh, and, and here are the things that, that we look for that we see. First of all, it was done online. And if you do a survey online, you're obviously excluding the percentage of people that don't have internet access. Um, and that's, that's a little over 10%, by the way. So already you've got a problem. The second issue with doing an online study, and again, we know this from just years of experience in doing them, and we do plenty of them, is that they also dramatically underrepresent light internet users. There's about a third of the country says that they use the internet less than an hour a day. Those people don't take surveys. So they're, they're very underrepresented in surveys. So already you're talking at about 40% of the population not being represented in this online survey. What's left are the people who use gadgets a lot. That's why that number is so high, right? So we understand why it's that high and we can calibrate it. So when we, uh, and also, you know, when, when there are a lot of uh, entities that will, you know, let you take surveys and get paid for them and, and things like that. And people will, uh, in an effort to get, uh, you know, to finish more of them quicker and get paid, et cetera, they'll, they'll do what we call straight lining them, which is they're just just ticking off random answers as fast as they can. Well, we, we hide little Easter eggs in our questionnaire so that we can spot that. Um, so there's all kinds of things that we do to make an internet survey uh, weighted and calibrated and look right. And when I see one with a number like, the, uh, like that number I just quoted to you on that smart speaker study, we, it just smells wrong instantly to us. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's why. I'd imagine also the mobile versus desktop user discrepancy can come into play, especially if a survey is not mobile optimized or it's only made for mobile or things like that, that could also skew the data. Absolutely. And you really have to think mobile only when you're doing an online survey. Um, if it doesn't work on mobile, it's not a good question. Um, and that's just, you know, you're, you're excluding a part of the population or you're discouraging them. And that's the biggest problem with research is non-response bias. Who didn't take it and, and what do you know about them? And if the people who didn't take it are not just random, but actually share certain characteristics, then you're, you're putting a significant skew into your data that you may not even be aware of. That's really interesting. So there, because there's like this whole side of, um, you know, using data in, in making business decisions that relies heavily upon how the data is collected in the first place. Um, I think there's another side of it too, that I'm really curious your take on is, you know, there's this proliferation of bots and of fake accounts and all this stuff. And it's really, I mean, it's crushing my industry of social media. Like it's really hard to advise clients on what to do. It's changing the platforms and, you know, they're removing ad options and all these, and even the ad stats, you know, I don't know, I'm sure you saw, but Facebook just came out and said that their video metrics were off by, they said 150%. Other studies showed like up to 900%. So you've got this whole thing where even the system itself may not be reliable. How much is that impacting our ability to use data to make smart decisions? I mean, because to me, it sounds like if you can't trust, generally speaking, the stats or data that you're getting for one reason or another, you know, how much can we use those to make actual business decisions? Well, I'm, I'm going to make a fairly strong statement here, but believe me, it's, it's one that uh, uh, I think I've been vindicated on from when I initially made it. Uh, I, don't, I don't use social media data for anything quantitative. 
I do not rely on social media data whatsoever. The only thing I would ever look at social media data, data for is uh, I might mine text to see, uh, this, to see what language is being used to describe a thing, mm-hmm. right? I might get language and ideas from it, um, but it is not in any way, shape, or form quantitatively reliable. And, you know, the, the example uh, I like to use is sentiment analysis. Sentiment analysis is terrible. I always loved that when it first came out, like, like not first, but like when I first saw it back in like 2009, 2010, and they would say, oh, it has an, an enormous margin of error. I was like, well, what's the point then? The, exactly. What's the point? And, and the issue is, you know, they'll come out and they'll say that, you know, it's, it's, you know, correct for X percent of positives and X percent of negatives. But what they don't say are how many uh, samples that they just take a whiff on. They just say it's neutral when it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's terrible. There's there's nothing reliable that I have seen out there, and I'm I'm sorry, sentiment analysis software providers. Um, I I I once wrote a blog post on the foolproof method of sentiment analysis, and that is to take two thousand randomly sampled pieces of data and get a pencil. It'll take you a couple hours. Uh, there's no reason to take the census of every scrap of your data, which is what these automated sentiment analysis uh, software uh, does. There's no need to do that. Sampling works. Uh, as you mentioned at the, at the beginning, you, you don't need to, to drink all the soup to know it's salty. You just need a spoonful of it. And if, if you've stirred it correctly, i.e. you're taking a genuine random sample of a couple thousand tweets or a couple thousand Facebook posts or whatever, uh, then you, know, you can sit down with a pencil and do it in a couple of hours. You know, grab an intern uh, and you'll be 100% right. So this is getting into territory of okay. Now we've we've collected the data. Um, we you know we're aware of the uh, implications of like how we go about collecting that data. Which by the way, your answer did not discourage me. It was it was about the most um, uplifting answer you could have given because I really thought you had like a treasure chest, uh, and I'm sure you have some some tools that you know normal humans don't have access to. But to hear that you know it's partly like literally just going and asking people with a clipboard and and asking questions. That's really, really helpful because I think it it kind of um, it underscores that it's not always a technology solution, but sometimes it's literally just an elbow grease, like get out there and do the work type solution. So, um, you know, I appreciate that. That's literally all it is. It's go out and do the work. Um, and I, you know, we have a, um, and sometimes it's just it's just being willing to take those pains. Um, you know, we were given a challenge by a couple of our clients to get deeper insight into what's happening in the car in terms of audio. And, you know, they couldn't quite figure out how to do it because not every car has a connected dash. Uh, They weren't sure how to acquire that data. Um, What we did was recruit a sample of people and mount GoPro cameras at their dashboards and just watched what they did and wrote it down. I mean, that's what we did. It's brute force, but, but we did it and we know it's right. Um, another, uh, another product that we offer, it's a, it's a subscription product actually called share of ear and it does something that sounds simple, but is actually not at all simple. It's just brute force. It's a single source measure of every form of audio, both online and offline. And that's not the easiest thing to do because audio is measured in so many different ways. You have, you know, Nielsen measures radio with uh, a technology called PPM, you have podcasts measured in downloads, you have satellite radio that they don't even tell you. Uh, how many people are listening to each station? They just give you subscribers. You know, you've got all of these different forms of uh, of audio online and offline. And so, 
again, we, we came up with a, a brute force approach to it where we just recruit thousands and thousands of people to, to record what they're doing on a given day, online or offline, into a diary uh, and tell us in 15-minute increments, basically, what they listened to, what device, what kind of content it was. Uh, and we just throw lots, of, lots and lots of bodies at it. And, you know, it turns out when you do that and you can amortize that over a few clients, it makes, it makes perfect sense to do. And it, it's become a, a real rock solid product for us. But, but it really is just knuckling down, doing the work of getting to the right people and asking them the right questions. Are these generally volunteers? Are these paid? I've heard, you know, there's one that I, um, you know, I was reading that book from Poop to from poop to gold, they were talking about standing, they wanted to talk to millennials. So they just stood outside of college campuses and offered like, you know, a $5 Starbucks gift card for like, you know, five or 10 minutes of answering questions. Is, is that kind of standard practice? Does that potentially taint the data? Or, you know, what's kind of a best practice around that? There's no evidence that it taints the data. And in fact, it's just required to if you're going to, if you're going to reach certain people, it's just required, right? If I, uh, if I want to do a focus group with doctors, uh, I can't give them a $5 Starbucks gift card. I have to give them $250. You know, I mean, I, I, that's just the way it is. If you want to get, if you want to get the right people, uh, there's no evidence that it taints the data whatsoever. In fact, there's evidence that if you don't do it, your, your non-response bias is potentially huge. Um, but if you're, you know, sometimes that doesn't always make sense for a company, but something always makes sense in terms of compensation, right? Uh, if you're, if you're a B2B company and, you know, you're trying to find insights uh, with a, a very specific kind of audience and you, and you need them, uh, you need some decent compliance rate to a survey in order for it to make sense. You've got to make it worth people's while. You can't just, you know, I, one thing I, I cannot stand is when a company sends me a 20 minute survey and they're and basically it just says, we'd really appreciate it. <laughs> well, how, how would you really appreciate it? And there's all kinds of ways to do it, right? There's all kinds of ways to do it. There's, it doesn't just have to be send me a check. It could be early access to something cool. It could be a gated piece of content. It could be a donation to a charity that means something to you. There's all kinds of ways to provide value for people that are on brand, right? Um, I remember when I, uh, when I bought uh, the, uh, when I bought my wife uh, a, a wedding ring, I bought it at Tiffany. And so I got registered at Tiffany basically and a week later, I got a 20-minute survey, and a, we'd really appreciate it. Now, it's off-brand for, for, for Tiffany to you know, give me a 10% discount on something for, uh, for taking the survey. That's kind of off-brand for Tiffany. I get it. But there's all kinds of ways to make it worthwhile. If I've just gone in and spent thousands of dollars on a ring, maybe I'm not going to take your survey. But if you tell me if I take it that you'll make a donation to something, that's on-brand, right? You can do it. And you know, I'm... Uh, I forget this story, but uh, Tamson just stuck a notepad in front of me that said "Sweet Green." You want to tell the story? Would you like a special guest? Oh, absolutely! I would love a special guest. You're going to get you're going to get a special guest. This is my brilliant wife, Tamson Webster, who uh, got some communication from Sweet Green, and now you're like you're a Sweet Green market researcher. Yeah, well, yes, and and not really even in, intentionally. I, so what happened is, is that I am a, a pretty heavy user of of Sweet Green, which is a maker of bowls and salads. Uh, in various large cities here in the United States of America. Um, and because I use the app to pay, they knew me, they knew my email address and all that. And so about three months ago, I got an email from them and said, hey, would you be 
interested in being a sweet green insider? In other words, would you be willing to regularly answer questions about sweet green and your experience there? But here's what they did. They sent you know, once a month for three months, they automatically put into my sweet green account enough money to cover a single sweet green bowl. And what they did was they said, go in, buy something with this. And then after you do, please fill out this five, 10 minute survey on the food and your experience with it. Um, and to me, that was completely worthwhile uh, because it was doing something I was going to do anyway. It gave them an army, I'm sure, of secret shoppers. Um, and for, for what? I mean, essentially, they, they gave away three bowls and that's what it was. I just thought that was a brilliant way to do it. Oh, that is brilliant. There's so many places that they could do that for me and I would happily play. Oh, yeah. Happily. Totally. No, that's there you a- go. Special guest star. That's awesome. We may want to invite her back at, uh, at the end of the podcast because there's another segment that um, I'm sure it would be good to get two answers for the price of one. Um, but before I get to that, I was hoping that you could actually answer two questions for me that make me feel stupid. And maybe since you're so good at explaining things, you could help me not feel stupid because I'm sure I'm not the only one. The first is, what the heck is regression analysis? <laughs> what is it? Why do people keep talking about it? I want to think that I understand how to analyze yeah. it. And then people say regression analysis, and then I'm all like, I don't know anything. So uh, regression analysis. Regression analysis 101 for the peoples. This is for the people, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you. Is Regression analysis is really simple. Um, you take a variable, let's say sales. And that's, you know, it's some kind of numeric variable. And then you look at all the other variables that contribute to it. Um, let's say you Traffic, track, yeah, let's, yeah, weather, temperature, uh, employees who work there, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you just, you have all of these samples of data, right? Uh, if it's sales, maybe it's, maybe you put a thousand days worth of uh, register tape in there or something like that. And you have all of these different variables. It's essentially just math that tells you how much the variance in each of those other variables contributed to the variance of the thing that you're measuring. So when you do a regression analysis, it will will come back and it will say, if you're measuring sales, uh, a a two degree rise in temperature contributed X amount to to a a dollar rise in sales. Um, The time of day contributed this amount to it. Uh, And then you'll also get a measure of how of how good the regression was. Did, was it neat and easy? Did it all seem to fit? Or is it kind of uh, sloppy and not all the variance is easily explainable by the variables? There's no such thing as a perfect regression, right? There's all kinds of, uh, there's just chance. There's just dumb luck that, 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 that plays into things. But when you do a regression analysis of you know, 20 different variables against another variable, you see which variables are driving it more. And it's always a complex answer. Every variable is contributing something but you're seeing the ones that really kind of move the needle more than the others and how much a raise in temperature actually drives, uh, you know, allergy medicine sales or something like that. So um, the, the more variables you put into a regression analysis, the more complicated it is, the better it is because everything contributes something. And the more things you leave out, the more kind of false positives you'll get for the things that you left in. So you want to, try to come up with as many variables as you can. Uh, but that's it in a nutshell. That's fascinating. That, and thank you because I, sure. this is a thing I never understood. And then there's a second thing I never understood. You're probably going to laugh at this one too, but what, what, does a, what is a pivot table and what does it do? Why do I need a pivot table? Huh. What, what is it? 
Yeah. So uh, pivot tables, um, you know, any, any piece of data is, you know, if you, if you do a survey, right. And I've asked 40 questions, I can spit out a report of the total sample and how they answered each of those 40 questions. But that's not where the real insight comes in. A piece of data like that, a survey, is a, is a three-dimensional construct. And I can look at any question in there by the results of any other question. Sometimes that's as simple as, tell me how appeal for this brand looked uh, male versus female. But sometimes it could be, tell me how uh, satisfaction with, with this brand differed amongst uh, people who watch this show more or watch this show less, right? Any piece of data can interact with any other piece of data. And pivot tables just help you spin the data around to look at it that way much more quickly. Um, because honestly, the process of getting insight from a survey, so this is my you know, week to week, I, I, this is one of the biggest parts of my job, uh, is either to design something to answer a question or once I've got the data back to make sense of it. And just looking at uh, you know, demographics is not going to make sense of it. The insights are going to come when you look at uh, maybe something you didn't think about. And so there's a lot of trial and error. There's no automated process to generate actual insight from, from data. There's just a lot of trial and error in it. And, and you know, an, an example I'll give, um, the last smart audio report that we did with NPR, we looked at smart speaker owners and you know, the results by the total sample were, were interesting. There was some great sort of summary and, and survey course data in there. But it wasn't until just through sort of trial and error and, uh, you know, I, I would say something very souped up and sophisticated in terms of pivot tables, uh, kind of the higher horsepower tools that we have, uh, pivoting it around and looking at how long people had owned their smart speakers and versus what they were doing with them. And we got this incredibly complex picture of two very different groups of people. We have the, the real early adopters who've had them for two years, and they bought them for smart home technology. They bought them you know, to wire up their lights and open their garage doors and things like that. Whereas the people who just bought them recently uh, are much more likely to say, you know, I'm, I'm using them to, uh, to, to listen to music, yes, but also just to you know, tell jokes and get the weather much more utilitarian uses than the kind of early adopters. And, and you don't sort of find that kind of thing out unless you spin every question around every possible way you can to see what's interesting. And so the pivot table is just a way to do that. Oh, God, that's so interesting. I'm so glad that you broke that down for me because I never understood <laughs> that either. And you know what's really cool about that is that this next little uh, final, I know we, we have a hard stop coming up soon, and, and this kind of final section of my podcast is where I ask people for what I call shareables. And there are these little individual questions of things that we would share with other people, such as like, you know, books you should read or podcasts and things like that. So what's cool is I know that I can make a podcast out of that, or not a podcast, a uh, pivot table out of that. Yes. Uh, I'm really excited to do that one day. <laughs> now that I know what it is, now I just have to learn how to do it. Uh, I may have to have a follow-up private episode with you to learn how to do it. But So I'm going to ask you a, a bunch of rapid-fire questions. Tamsin can join on this if she wants. I, I would never say no to bringing her back in as a guest, but if she's busy eating a sweet green salad, we can do it ourselves. Huh. All right, let's, let's, let's do it. All right, let's do a thing. Okay, so uh, first one that I normally ask at the top of the show is, uh, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? If I could have any superpower, what would it be? Uh, I would be One Punch Man. I would be, uh, I don't know if you know One Punch Man or not. Yeah, but, that's uh, hilarious. That's such yeah. a good 
totally Tom Webster answer that yeah, I'd be one punch man. I would vanquish anything with one punch and I would walk the earth looking for challengers who I couldn't defeat with one punch and I wouldn't find them. And I'd gradually uh, become depressed and, and disillusioned and I'd lie on the couch and just drink all day. Uh, but I would still be able to, to defeat anything with one punch. Wow. That's such a great answer. There you go. It's the most unique answer I think I've ever gotten. On I know I should answer. I, I, I would read people's minds cause that would make my job easier, but I just want to, I want to be one punch man. <laughs> It's amazing. Uh, what's one book every person should read? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, I'm, I'm going to business. It could be any book at all that you think everyone should read. Uh, any book at all that I think everyone should read. Um, that's a really good question. Gosh, Thanks. yeah. Um, I I'm going to say uh, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, um, which is a, a really good representation of his life's work, and his life's work has made its way into countless books uh, over the years. And, you know, things like The Paradox of Choice and Predictably Irrational and Freakonomics, all of that is based on the field that Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky invented, which is behavioral economics. And I guarantee you'll think about things differently. Doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter if you're a marketer, doesn't matter uh, what, your, what your career is. You'll just think about things differently. It's, it's a great book to teach you how to, how to frame things. Awesome. That's, I'm going to add that to my reading list. This is another good part of these shareables is that I'm constantly building for myself this really awesome list of great things from smart people. Um, you can't say the marketing companion and you could say shareable, but you shouldn't. What, uh, what's your favorite podcast? My favorite podcast. Um, well, as you know, I, I do a lot of work in the podcast industry. Yeah. A lot. And so I always, I, I tend so, to equivocate podcast. on this question because I'm I'm going to insult the client by not including them. Well, here's what I want you to do. Just so I can, let me frame that so you don't have to worry about a client feeling insulted. I don't, okay. you know, I know that you listen, you have tons of data in your head of different podcasts and things you listen to, probably things you like. If you were just, it's a regular day and you open up your podcast, what's the first thing you think to click on? Because you just enjoy it for one reason or another. You either educates, entertains, what's just a thing that's like your yeah. go Yeah. Uh, I listen to a lot of sports podcasts. So uh, I listen to, and, and the, I, they are a client, but I, I listen to their programming anyway. I, I listen to uh, the Dan Lebitard show on ESPN. I listen to his podcast. I listen to Jalen and Jacoby. I love Jalen Rose. Okay. I listen to, uh, there's a, a label, a music label uh, in London called uh, Anjuna. And they put out a couple of uh, music podcasts every week, of mostly stuff on their label. I love that stuff. I listen to it all the time. Um, and, uh, you know, and I listen to a, a, a lot of the, most popular podcasts because a I have to keep up on the on the industry and, and b a lot of them as I said are my clients. Uh, I think Wondery has done some really good work. Oh, um, so good. They, it's and I'll give a shout out to uh, my friend Mark Ramsey who has done podcasts for them on uh, on Jaws and on The Exorcist. Somebody told me about the Jaws one said it was awesome. Yeah, um, it's on and, my list right now. And Psycho. Um, and they're they're a they're really really good. Mark's a very compelling storyteller. Uh, and B, uh, another friend of mine, Jeff Schmidt, does the sound design, and the sound design is magnificent on those on those podcasts. Incredibly well done. Very cool. Well, I'm going to give you one just to if you haven't heard, sure. it, but I'd be curious to like. I, I think you'd probably have a field day looking at the data that comes out of it. But uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Yeah, I love that. Um, that's uh, and he doesn't do that many of them, which is understandable because they're oh, like seven oh, hours yeah. long. Yeah, they're so long. Um, but I just, you know, I, I love them because they also, uh, they confound aggregate data. There was a particularly, uh, 
not very bright piece of data put out uh, a, a while back that looked at the average listening session, uh, I think on Stitcher maybe, and, uh, and that it was 22 minutes. And then people started to conclude that a podcast should be 22 minutes long. Well, a listening session should not determine how long your podcast is. A, B, it's an average. And I guarantee you that 22 minutes is made up out of a bunch of people that say 10 and a bunch of people that say two hours. And then there's hardcore history. And it's one of the most popular podcasts. Uh, and it's, you know, and it's hours and hours and hours long. So most of my favorite ones are at least 45 minutes. And most of the ones that I really, really listen to and like are over an hour and a half or two hours sometimes. Well, there's some of that is the, uh, is the inventory dictating the system more than the system dictating the inventory. I mean, we are starting to get some really top quality, well-produced short form content, you know, things like up first and the, and the daily and today explained. And yeah. you're going to see a, a, a gusher of that uh, over the next couple of years because there's a place for that. Anchor. It just happens to be that a lot of the early great podcasts, a lot of them uh, done on public media, for instance, they, they sort of have those storytelling chops and they're, they're good long form content makers. But, you know, we're going to see a lot more short form content for sure. Fabulous. Um, all right. Uh, uh, TV show or movie everyone should watch? Uh, TV show or movie that everyone should watch? Uh, I am, uh, I'm, I'm going to go a few years back here because I don't think this got enough, enough credit for how great, uh, how great it really was. Awesome. And it was a series called Justified on FX, and it is a great American epic. It's um, about Justin Timberlake, isn't it? It is not the one with Justin Timberlake, or if it is, he got shot in the first episode, which is another good reason to watch it. Um, no, I'm kidding. Um, no, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great American epic. Uh, it lasted seven seasons. Uh, Timothy Oliphant is the star. Um, he was in Deadwood and, and, uh, and some other, he's a fantastic actor. Uh, one of the best villains in TV history, um, Boyd Crowder, played by Walton Goggins, who's a phenomenal actor. Uh, cannot recommend it highly enough. And there's every season has the sort of a new guest star villain in it um, of, of note. Sam Elliott was in the last season. Um, and it's uh, just the writing, the dialogue. It's, uh, it's, it's almost without equal on well, regular your, television. Your passion has inspired me to look into it. Yeah, right. give it a try. I will. Give it a try. Uh, all right, last few. Uh, one application someone should go and download today. Desktop mobile doesn't matter. I could not, I, not, this won't apply to everybody, but I, I probably couldn't function without TripIt Pro. Um, I use TripIt Pro every day. I use, uh, I use Evernote a lot too, but TripIt Pro, uh, I mean, I traveled 165 days last year and without TripIt Pro, I'd be curled up in a fetal position in uh, Schenectady, New York somewhere, unable to get home. All right, we'll look into it. Uh, what's the big lesson you wish you learned earlier in your career? Big lesson I wish I learned earlier in my career. Um, I made a, I made some mistakes early, early in my career, not understanding how uh, how teams fit together. And I was uh, I was very you know uh, as a younger professional, I advanced pretty far pretty quickly. I was a little precocious. Uh, thought that I was smarter, I think, than some of the other people on on the teams that I worked with. Uh, and I didn't know what I didn't know, especially in terms of how humans interact. And, you know, there, there was one person who was actually, um, that I worked with, who was, uh, who was my superior. And I just couldn't understand, like, 
how he was able to get all of the, all of the work that he was able to get for us because he he brought in a lot of jobs. I'm like, this guy really doesn't understand what we do. And then I just realized that he had access to another language that I didn't yet know how to speak, uh, and I was too quick early in my career not to understand uh, what I didn't know. I think, and so I think I probably would have spoken less earlier in my career until I had all that figured out. Yeah, that's a good one. All right, last two is what's the most important skill of the future? Uh, most important skill of the future. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to give an answer here that, uh, I, I know that my wife Tamsin would agree with is, is know how to make something by hand. Interesting. Cause yeah, the, the trades, the apocalypse the trades are never going to go away. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And final thing, what is one thing, one thing only that everyone listening to this episode should go and do today? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, one thing that everyone listening to this episode should go and do today. Um, say a kind word to somebody. I love it. I love it. Well, Tom, you've been an extraordinary guest. I'm so glad that you agreed to come on to this show. I have been excited to have you on for quite a while. Uh, so I thank you for coming on and explaining to me what the heck regression analysis and pivot tables are. Uh, Not what I thought I'd be doing today, but you're welcome. <laughs> cool. It, you know, sometimes you just got to help somebody out. Uh, so tell people where they can go and be social with you, learn more about what you're doing and, uh, you know, just, just learn more about the great Tom Webster. Sure. Um, well, you can see the work that we do at edisonresearch.com. Uh, I'm, I'm on the Twitters at, uh, Webby 2001, which was my old AOL screen name from years ago. I just, I just kept it cause I, I liked it. Um, uh, I'm, I'm on the LinkedIn. Uh, certainly you can see a lot of our work published there. Uh, I have a very neglected blog at brandsavant.com. Uh, I was going to bring that up. You've definitely yeah. to media uh, or medium. Uh, yeah, I, I have. I, I just, medium has worked better for me. And also, you know, there's, I don't know, there's this expectation if you have a blog that you're actually going to, you know, write on it. And I have defied that expectation for a long time now. Um, but medium is actually, has been a great place uh, for me to write and share things. And actually that piece that I wrote, uh, the, the podcasting manifesto for growth has done very well on medium, far better than I think it would have done on my blog. So I'll, I'll probably continue to put content there. Very cool. Well, uh, this episode was amazing. You provide with the tons of information and all sorts of stuff that I think, uh, people should be willing to tell others about, which I think makes this podcast shareable. Wait, the show's not over yet. I have some important announcements. If you made it this far, you're clearly a dedicated fan or you're in the middle of vacuuming and just haven't hit stop on your podcasting app. Whatever the case, we want to thank you. We're not just music to your ears, we're music to your inbox. If you subscribe to our email list at sharablepodcast.com slash subscribe, not only will you get access to our private Facebook group, you'll also get all of our blog posts, newsletters, special announcements, and more. You won't find any of that in your podcast feed. You can follow the show at shareable underscore pod on Twitter and just shareable podcast on everything else. You can find Jeff online at jeffgibber.com and you can connect with me on Twitter at Caroline Stone because I don't have a website yet. So go ahead, call us, leave a message, subscribe to our list, leave a rating, review us on iTunes, tell a friend, tell your mom. If she's like my mom, she'll love it. And now for the thank you portion to all the folks that make this podcast possible, shout out to DJ Quads for the use of our theme song, Always, and Ahamitsu for the use of our outro song, Adventures. And a big thank you to Ray Bueno for all of that sexy production value. 